Greetings, brethren. Welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, just give me one moment while I just make one little fix here. All right, there we go. So welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. We are now up to Isaiah chapter 5. And this is such a powerful chapter. I'm really looking forward to unpacking this. Uh, together with you this evening. Also very exciting, brethren, that we're just a little over a week away from Passover and the kickoff of the spring holiday season. Just a wonderful time. So welcome. Uh, let's say uh, an opening prayer, and then let's get into the study for this evening. Loving Father, we pause. Uh, we just want to acknowledge the great privilege we have as your people to gather together around your word uh, and this the words of the prophet isaiah the prince of the prophets the head of the prophets uh, we just thank you so much father that you've given us the desire uh, to go through what many consider a difficult book a complex book but as we go through it line by line we pray for your mercy father that we would be able to understand what the prophet was saying and what it means to us today and that we would be able to act on it and undertake our responsibility as first fruits. We praise you, Lord. We, we thank you for this uh, countdown now into the spring holiday season. And we ask your blessing through the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, yes, brethren, let's, uh, let's get into the study for this evening. We are looking at Isaiah 5. And let's uh, pick it up in verse 1. So we've gone through um, Isaiah chapters 1 to 4, and the prophet has given us a very clear context of his vision concerning Judah, and more specifically, Jerusalem. And now we get into chapter 5, which is still part of the opening sequence and sets the tone for the rest of the book. Uh, let's get into now verse 1 of chapter 5. He says here, Now will I sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. So let's put ourselves uh, back in the time of this prophet when he was alive and he's addressing the nation of Judah. And, and we're listening to him. We understand he's a prophet of God. And we're listening to him. And he's telling us that he has a song to sing. Well, who doesn't like music? And so he has a song, but it's not a song to us. It's a song that he's going to sing to his well-beloved about his well-beloved, touching his well-beloved's vineyard. Okay, well, we're living in an agricultural uh, economy and society, and so we would be very familiar with vineyards and farmers and the whole process of harvesting a vineyard. Um, but he has somebody that he really loves. And this loved one has a vineyard, and he's now going to sing to his loved one a song about the vineyard. Sounds good. We've got our attention. And then he begins the song. And maybe he's actually singing this. It's certainly very poetic in the Hebrew. And just picture he has a beautiful voice, and he's going to sing now. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Well, this sounds wonderful. This sounds like it's going to be a very beautiful love song. Uh, let's lean in and listen more carefully. It's a song to his well-beloved 
about his well-beloved regarding his well-beloved's vineyard. And that his well-beloved vineyard has, his well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So the expectation is now set. Uh, we're thinking this is going to be a very positive song. And uh, we can only expect a very fruitful harvest if it's a, it's a, if it's a, a vineyard that he has on a very fruitful hill. Now, this song, it hasn't caught their attention yet, but it's actually an allusion back to the Torah. When Moses was told to write a song for Israel, and so in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 19, we'll just break into it here, uh, he says, now therefore, now Moses is at the end of his life, and he's about to pass the baton of leadership to Joshua. He's not going in the promised land. They're going, the, the Israelites are going to be led into the promised land by Joshua. And at the end of his life, Moses is given this instruction to write a song for Israel. So he says, now therefore, this is God speaking to Moses, write you this song for you and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. So let's be clear here. God is instructing Moses to write a song and to teach the children of Israel to sing this song and to pass it down from one generation to the next so that as the words come out of their mouth, they are condemning themselves and they are bearing witness against themselves to their faithlessness. This is what Moses is asked to do at the end of his life. For when I have brought them into the land, which I swore unto their fathers, that flows with milk and honey. So again, the covenant is not just between two people. It also involves land. So it's a covenant regarding land. And so he's saying to Moses, when I brought them into this land, which I swore, I've covenanted unto their fathers, that flows with milk and honey. And they shall have eaten and filled themselves and waxen fat. Then will they turn unto other gods. So God is telling Moses, this is what's going to happen. And serve these other gods and provoke me and break my covenant. And it shall come to pass when many evils and troubles are befallen them, that this song shall testify against them as a witness. So, so in other words, they'll have nobody to blame but themselves. And when they sing this song, the full import of the lyrics will strike them, that they have brought this on themselves. For it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. So it's going to be a catchy song, easy to remember and sing, and it's going to pass down from generation to generation. And when the full impact of their evil comes upon them, the full impact of the lyrics will also come upon them. For I know their imagination, which they go about, even now, before I have brought them into the land, which I swore. Moses, therefore, wrote this song the same day. This was urgent. This was Moses' highest priority that day. He's at the end of life. These people are about to go into the promised land, and God instructs them, write a song for them that they will teach every generation. And Moses makes it his highest priority. Moses, therefore, wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And then what's this song all about? Well, he says, for their vine, so we're going to go to Isaiah 5 now, which is about the vine. For their vine is the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. And remember, in Isaiah 1, 
he accused the leaders of being leaders of Sodom and the people being the people of Gomorrah. So here it is, right in the Torah, that the very vineyard of Israel is the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. So if we're going to come to Isaiah's song now, which is a call back to Torah. But the way he sets it up, they're not going to recognize immediately that it's a call back to Torah. He's presenting it as a, as a love song. He, he, he loves God, and he's going to sing this song to God about God's vineyard. But they don't really understand yet what he's saying. They're leaning in to find out what is this all about, but it's a call back to Torah. They are people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and their grapes are poisonous and rotten and, and just spoiled. Listen. Verse 33, their wine is the poison of dragons. This is in Torah. They haven't even stepped foot in the promised land yet. And God is already predicting and telling them through Moses the extent of the evil and the abdication of the covenant. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. I just don't know what to say. Can it get any more uh, clear than this? And, and the metaphors that God uses, it's a, they're a cluster of grapes, but it's poisonous, and it's like the poison of dragons and, and the cruel venom of, of, of vipers. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. So Torah is saying, because of these poisonous grapes that represent Israel, the calamity is going to come swiftly. The calamity is going to come upon them swiftly. And when it does, they need to know this song. So if you continue in Deuteronomy 32... Um, you can get Moses' song. but And this was just a snippet, actually. Uh, I, I jumped from 31 to just take a snippet in 32, which is part of the song. But here's part of the song that's referring to the vineyard. So now let's come back to Isaiah 5. So he sets it up. Uh, they're innocently listening. It's a beautiful, it sounds like it's going to be a beautiful song. He probably has a beautiful voice, beautiful melody. And it's a song to him, or from him to God, to his well-beloved. He hasn't said it's God yet. But it's a song to his well-beloved, and his well-beloved has a vineyard on a fruitful hill. Now let's begin. And he fenced it. And again, these are farmers, so they understand the, the level of... When, when he says he fenced it, they understand the level of effort required. If you have a vineyard, a large vineyard, the effort required to put a fence around it, that's hard work. But that's just the beginning and gathered out the stones thereof. So again, they're farmers. They understand the level of effort here. And planted it with the choicest vine. So the setup here is just beautiful. It's a, on a fruitful hill. It's protected. It's, it's All the stones are taken out, and it's planted with the choicest vine. So the expectations are growing high. And built a tower in the midst of it. Again, the level of effort required to do this. And also made a wine press therein great expectations of the harvest and what we will do with it. And so let's build a wine press in there as well. And he looked, 
that it should bring forth grapes. And of course, we're, we're listening to the song. And uh, of course, we're expecting it's going to bring forth grapes. But it brought forth poisonous grapes. Now, Torah, the echoes of Torah are coming to mind. There was a great expectation here, and a lot of effort went into this, this uh, vineyard and because of the great expectation. And at the time of harvest, and maybe he's even singing this song at the time of harvest, the fall harvest, when fall harvest is the, the lots of grapes come in the fall. So maybe he's singing this song at this time. And they could imagine their high expectation being thwarted. And now... It says wild grapes, the, the Hebrew implies poisonous grapes, as in from Torah. It implies completely nasty, just like filth, that you could not, you wouldn't even give it to an animal to consume. Let's go to Exodus now, around this whole concept of the expectation. In Exodus 33, 13, Moses says, Now therefore I beg you, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight and consider this nation is your people. So Moses is now going to pray for the protection of this people, which represents the protection of the vineyard. And he said, God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And he said unto him, if your presence go not with me, carry us up not hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and your people have found grace in your sight? Is it not in that you go with us? So we are Israel. We're going forward. Uh, how do people know that we are special to you? That you go with us. So shall we be separated, I and your people, from all the people that are upon the earth? So these are a people that are different from everybody else on the earth. This is God's vineyard, and there's a fence around it, and it is completely separate and apart from every other human tribe. This is Israel, separated, holy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And Yehovah said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And so... Israel was a protected people. They had a fence around them, and they were separate from all other people. And there was high expectation. It's going to be a kingdom of priests. Back to Isaiah 5 and verse 3. Isaiah's vision concerns Judah and Jerusalem. We got that 2020 as we opened up this book. It's the vision that Isaiah received concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So as we read this and we understand from Torah, the broader context with Israel has now been reduced to Judah. God has rejected the northern tribes. And now what's left of the covenant people are the southern tribes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, so this is now going to catch them off guard. So already they were kind of caught off guard where they thought they were going to hear a love song and, and beautiful expectations fulfilled, but that was thwarted. It's set up like it's going to be a love song, but then the expectation was thwarted. Well, here's the punchline. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyards. And now God is speaking through the prophet to the people and saying, tell me how you would judge on this. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes, poisonous grapes, rotten grapes. So you can imagine, this is a fair question. And they're farmers. They're going to say, you, you really couldn't have done anything more. And in fact, we, we would just abandon this. Abandon the project. You, you've done all you can. Great. Let's continue. And now go to. God is now speaking to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Okay. I will take away the hedge thereof. So remember from Torah, these are a separated people from all the other peoples of the world. And God is now saying, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not just going to walk away from this vineyard. I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to take away the protection of this vineyard. And it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof. And it shall be trodden down. I'm going to destroy this vineyard. And I will lay it waste. This is God speaking about his special people. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. So remember this. He's just going to leave it alone and just let it be ruined. I will also, and so that there's no doubt in the prophet's song that this is actually speaking about God, he says, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is clearly God speaking. Only God can command the clouds, ignore this patch of land and don't give it any water. Don't give it any sustenance. Now, when God was on earth, he cursed Jerusalem, the vineyard of God. And in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. This, this is the vineyard that God was expecting beautiful fruit to come from, but instead murder. Instead, oppression. Instead, theft and adultery and idolatry. All the rottenness came out of these people, even though God set them up for success. So when God was on earth, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent unto you. How often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicken under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. So here he's using the metaphor of a hen gathering her chicks, but it's the same concept, whether we're talking of a metaphor or a vine dresser. It's still this care and compassion and expectation. You know, Moses, um, God says to Isaiah, I've raised children and they've rebelled against me. So there's this great expectation, this great investment that just turns sour. And here Christ points this out to Jerusalem before he curses them. In Matthew 24, back to Isaiah 5, he says, so now, after setting this up, now we come to the real punchline. So now they're following along. They're a bit, there's a few twists and turns here. They're trying to get their head around what's going on here. He points the finger right at them. After telling them the personal agenda of God to destroy these people, to destroy his own vineyard, 
Then he makes it clear to remove all doubt. Let's make sure that everybody listening to this song really understands what it's about. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. We saw that in Deuteronomy 32, 31 and 32. The vineyard of Jehovah of hosts, Zavuat, the armies, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. What, what's going on here? And he looked for judgment. This is, this is the expectation that he had. He planted this vineyard and separated it and protected it so that it could be a source of judgment throughout the whole earth. And we see, ultimately, we're going to get there because Isaiah had the vision in Isaiah 2 that Gentiles all over the world are going to go to Mount Zion for judgment. He looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. A cry out of oppression, suffering. And think of Habakkuk. Matthew 21 <clears throat> In verse 33, again, this whole concept of the vineyard. Matthew 21 and verse 33, he says, Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard. Uh, again, you know, New Testament Christians don't see the Bible as one narrative. And so they'll just read this parable as a nice parable and take meaning out of it. Instead of reading it as a Jew speaking to Jews, alluding to Jewish scripture, echoing the, the, the teachings of the prophets and fulfilling the teachings of the prophets. So this parable is an allusion to Isaiah 5. Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about, think Isaiah 5, and digged a wine press in it, Isaiah 5, and built a tower, Isaiah 5. And let it out to husbandmen. This was now the audience of Isaiah. And went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. This is Jerusalem. And these are the men of Judah. And God had a great, he set them up, gave them every opportunity for success. And this is the bitter, poisonous, rotten grapes that he gets. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son. Here it is right now. He was on earth and Christ came. And notice, Christ was sent to Judah. Christ wasn't this long-haired hippie with sandals that came to hug the earth. He was sent on a mission. And here's the mission, and, and sent to a specific audience, and for a specific audience. And here it's very clear. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, them, the same people that he sent his prophets to, is who he sent his son to. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. So they have just been overtaken by greed, by covetousness, by, by, by just uh, murderous intent, bloodthirst. And they caught him 
and cast him out of the vineyard. This is the owner's son. They cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. It's exactly what they did. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? It's similar to the question Isaiah posed. What more could he have done for this vineyard? What would you do? How would you judge? In Matthew 21, verse 41, just conclude here, they said unto him, so they answered, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. Amen. You got it right. Now go and read Isaiah 5, because this is about you. And will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen. Ah, so there, he's not going to abandon this altogether. The, the covenant will not be abandoned. Rather, through the workings of the Holy Spirit, a first fruits harvest will be invited in to take over where these men have failed. He will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. So this first fruits harvest will actually fulfill the expectation that, that Christ said, I'm the vine. My father's the husbandman. Think John 15. I'm the vine. You, you, you are the branches. You need to be connected to me in order to bear fruit. And this is the expectation that you would bear much fruit. This isn't just a, a parable or analogy, a metaphor that just comes out of thin air. It comes out of thin air to those who reject the Hebrew writings. It doesn't come out of thin air to us. All of these are tightly coupled illusions because there's one narrative. And so we who have been grafted in have been grafted in to bear fruit where the original vine or the original uh, clusters have been unfruitful. The expectation on us now is to be fruitful and to bring the fruit in their seasons. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah makes it clear, again speaking to Judah, since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt, unto this day have I even sent unto you all my servants the prophets. Think what Christ just said in Matthew 23. Daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear. But hardened their neck, they did worse than their fathers. Hence the condemnation in Matthew 23. So when we come back to Matthew 23 now, the tail end, he curses them. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets because we're just more righteous than them. Uh, wherefore, you be witness unto yourselves. You, 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 out of your own mouths, you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, again, this is Torah. Remember, Moses said that their, their, their grapes are like the, the poison of cl the, the cluster, the grapes, They're like the viper, the, 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 the um, poison that comes out of vipers. That's what their fruit is like. And so now Christ is saying, back to Torah, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That, that you, of Gena, that you, he, clearly there was an expectation of fruit and all you're giving is poison. Therefore, behold, I, say, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes 
and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Th this is Judah and Jerusalem. We've got to understand the narrative, brethren, that the way the earth is going, the way all of this uncertainty and instability all around the world, it has to do with this verse. That all of the evil bloodshed upon the earth must come upon these people. That, that is quite some curse. And that's, that's what the future holds. That's where we're heading. That, and the reason is, had these people fulfilled their calling and been that city on a hill that would have provided judgment to the whole earth, then we wouldn't have had any of this bloodshed. But because they abdicated from the covenant, there was no judgment in the earth. And so all of this bloodshed, because they are the covenanted people, God places it upon them. And all of the blood, that all the prophet's blood that has been shed, God places it upon them. And so this uh, tribulation, this abomination that makes desolate, that is being orchestrated as I speak and as we are here, it's, it's, it's being put into place. The catastrophe that is coming comes from Isaiah 5, which Christ is alluding to here in Matthew 23. And if we are into this kind of replacement theology, then this is happening right under our noses, and we don't see it because we think we're the most important people in the world, and God has just abandoned this whole narrative. But if we understand the narrative, then we understand our place in it, and we understand why it's important for us to grasp this accurately and preach the gospel precisely. These people are under a curse that no other people on the face of the earth are under, because they were under a blessing and a sanctification that no other people on the earth were under. Back to Isaiah 5, verse 8. Now he begins, Isaiah begins to unload the curses as a result of this situation. With the unfortunate tale of the thwarted expectations of his beloved with respect to the vineyard, the vineyard being the people of Israel. And so then the northern tribes are gone, they, they, that's clear. And now what's left in the south, in, in the covenant, even they have gone. They, in fact, they've gone more wayward and more poisonous and rotten than the northern tribes. Woe unto them that join house to house. And the first time I ever heard this scripture was somebody who um, was looking at a residential environment where the houses were row houses, they were connected, and they used this verse to condemn that type of construction. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that these people are so greedy that they are just consuming up all the land, the holy land, which they've been brought into, which doesn't belong to them. As Christ said that um, they've taken their husbandmen, but they've taken over the vineyard as if it's theirs. And so they're now taking every piece of the land so that they can increase their wealth. 
woe unto these people who are trying to increase their wealth and just they, there's no end to their appetite for wealth. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. And, you know, we see it today, where these powerful multi-billionaires, they just don't have enough. And they don't care if they have to kill millions and millions and hundreds of millions of human beings so that they can have more. And there's just they just want everything. That's the sentiment here. In my ears, says Jehovah of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without inhabitants. So here's God's response to this type of greed. I'm going to wipe them out. They can build these big houses and mansions and, and just try to think they have everything. I'm going to wipe them out. Yeah, 10 acres of vineyard shall be one bath. And the seed of a homer shall yield an ephah. So in other words, he's just going to reduce the whole yield to nothing. That all of their, their expectations will be dashed. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning. That they may follow strong drink. That continue, continue until night. Till wine inflame them. So they've just lost their purpose. They have somehow come to believe that the purpose of their life is to be satiated. That the purpose of their life is to explore every possible pleasure they can get their hands on. And this is uh, here uh, typified by their addiction to strong drink, just the, the sen titillating the senses. And the harp and the vial and the tabret, tabret and the pipe and wine are in their feasts. And this actually, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 11 and how the Corinthians were behaving around the agape meal and the Passover, uh, it's like, here it is, that they're just, they just lose their purpose and become so self-absorbed that life becomes about pleasure instead of purpose. But they regard not the work of Yehovah, neither consider the operation of his hands. So the implication here is that God expects his harvest to be aware of what he's doing. What is his work in the earth right now? Do we actually see his operation? They don't see it. And it's going to surprise them. In fact, again, Habakkuk. When Habakkuk was looking at all of this and almost accused God of not doing anything, God said, no, I'm hard at work. I'm actually doing something about this. But don't look inside the community for my work. Look out to the Gentile world. And as you look into the Gentile world, you'll see what I'm doing. I'm actually preparing Gentile armies to come and destroy my harvest. So these people are living it up, having a nice time, wonderful time. They don't understand the operation of the Lord's hands. So he says here, you know, they're all consuming themselves with pleasure, but they regard not the work of Jehovah, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity. They didn't see this coming. Therefore, and this is Torah. This is the covenant. Therefore, this is just activating the covenant clause. They, they cannot get out of the covenant. They can break the covenant, but they can't get out of it. Why? Because God is faithful. So God adheres tightly to the covenant. And because they've been unfaithful, well, there are clauses in the covenant that, that allow for that, that deal with that.
And so God activates those clauses, and he never acts outside of covenant. Therefore, according to covenant, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They're, they're just unaware. They're oblivious. And their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. They, they've brought this upon themselves. Therefore, Sheol, or the grave, has enlarged herself. And you just, you just think and open her mouth without measure. And, you know, in our generation, I can remember as a young man, my dad watching documentary on the Holocaust. And I was thinking I was six years old and the TV was on and I just saw these naked bodies being thrown into a ditch. The, the, the grave just enlarged itself and opened its mouth wide without measure. That's the future. That was a dress rehearsal for the future. It's almost like a pardon the pun. That was a sort of an undress rehearsal. That, that's the humiliation. And it's so unfortunate. And it was so, and it's so unnecessary. These are the people that should be the, the head nation of the whole earth. God had such a great expectation for them, but they've abandoned the covenant. And so now the grave has enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. How can you not feel the pain of God as we're reading these scriptures? And I think as we get our head into the text, then we feel what God feels, as Isaiah did. And then we feel the, the burden of the responsibility to preach the gospel accurately so that the, the recipients of this covenant clauses, both good and bad, what Moses laid out, can understand their role. If we preach sort of the traditional, Jesus loves everybody and he came so that you can live in heaven forever, this is not going to resonate. If we can open up their text and point them to their text and show the cohesion and the single narrative throughout Genesis to Revelation and their role in all of this and, and the comfort that this is horrible, these curses are horrible, but yet Isaiah is going to tell us, or God is going to tell us through Isaiah, to speak words of comfort to Jerusalem. So all of this has to be reconciled, that ultimately there's good news. Even though this is horrendous, it's all leading up to the gospel. It's context for the gospel. Therefore, hell has enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. Well, that's quite something. You're as high as the sky, and the next thing you're in the grave. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled. And again, this is uh, when, in Revelation when it speaks about this, an allusion to Isaiah. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. And we've spoken about that, that the root cause of all of this is pride. And God is dealing with the pride. But Jehovah of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. This is so, even though man is being exalted, exalting himself, in the end, all of that pride will come down and Jehovah will be exalted in the judgment that he was looking for from them. And God, that is holy, shall be sanctified in righteousness. This, this is inevitable. This is inescapable. This is inexorable. Th this is the future. But, and they could have been a part of this, but they chose pride instead. They were seduced by pride. 
Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. So this is, a, this is like, there's good news in here. God is going to be sanctified in righteousness. He's going to be exalted in judgment. And then the lambs will be able to feed. And even the waste places of the fat ones, then, then strangers are going to be invited in to eat. So there's a hint here of some good news. But he pauses that and comes back. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. They just love this. They're just totally into this. That say, listen to what they say now. This is the extent of the arrogance. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work. So Isaiah has put out there, look, this is what's going to happen. And then this is how they respond. Yeah, well, look at, let, make it happen fast then. Let him make speed and hasten his work. You get the sense of complete uh, disengagement from reality. And, and no sense of what they're dealing with here. They're just wrapped up in their own world. They say, so those are going to be cursed that say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. We haven't seen it yet. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come, that we may know it. This is like taunting. They're taunting God. Hey, we haven't seen anything. We're just living high on the hog here, and we're quite enjoying ourselves. And if you say this is going to happen, let it happen fast because we haven't seen any evidence of it. And they even use the term that Isaiah uses repeatedly, the Holy One of Israel. Oh, the Kadosh Yisrael. Kadosh Yisrael. He, he is the Holy One of Israel. They even use this. Let him come near and, and, and let, let's see it. Isaiah comes back. Woe unto them that call evil good. And good evil. And we, we are certainly seeing that in our society. But this is specifically speaking of Judah and Jerusalem. This is what they've been doing. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is, this is a complete reversal. They've got it all backwards. They've been completely taken over by Satan, these covenant people. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. And that they certainly were. And prudent in their own sight. So they're, they're judging themselves, not by Torah, but by their own standards and congratulating each other and very proud of each other. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Again, they're so into their own uh, pleasures that they're just deep into this addiction and uh, just complete, uh, uh, what's the word there? Um, hedonistic way of life which justified the wicked for reward. We know all about this. We see this totally in our governments today. That as long as you're willing to pay us, this, this is in fact why uh, China is gaining such rapid ground that it is really the true superpower. The, the fact that America is a superpower, this is a hangover. This is a hangover from yesterday, from, from years gone by. It's over for America. We just have this hangover of the past that the, it was built up to such an enormous power that it's still, you know, when we look at the world, it really is still the, the, the superpower. However, it's in complete decline and collapse. I'm sorry. I personally wish it wasn't this way. Greatest nation the world has ever seen. 
in a free fall. And we don't yet understand the implications of this for us, but we will. And hopefully we're ready for this. I, I don't know if those who have been fighting for a better world are ready, but we better be ready. But China, even though it's kind of catching up to the US and okay, it's, it's a superpower, but it's not quite at the US, there's a big difference. One nation is on the decline, the other empire is on the ascension. And the reason a large part of their, their success is right here. Those who justify the wicked for reward. And I don't think, I hope nobody would argue that communism is wickedness. But people are being rewarded. Their bank accounts are being filled. And so they're happy to betray as long as they can make money. And so this is woe unto those which justify the wicked for reward. It won't end well. You're, you're sort of taking... Uh, present pleasure for eternal curses. Woe unto them which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. And, and this is the danger again for our day, even though we're trying to understand the text in context. There's just so many illusions and applicability to our day today that, again, what Satan wants to do is take away our righteousness from us. And so he seduces us with rhetoric. And people get behind causes that they don't properly understand. They don't understand who's behind it, where it's leading, and they don't understand that they're tearing down their own nations. They're, they're participating in the destruction of their own nation, and they don't know what's going to replace it. But what's going to replace it is a system that is going to systematically now we can talk about systematic. What's coming is a new government that is going to systematically remove righteousness. That laws and policies and, uh, and, and um, bylaws and procedures are going to be set up to remove righteousness. You know, welcome to Act One. We're just the early stages where you can no longer congregate where if you try to hold an assembly, you, you will go to jail, where you will be roughed up by the police, which have become, and pardon my language, prostitutes with pistols. Police who take an oath to serve and protect have become prostitutes with pistols. Who's paying them and what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to rough up? So it's not unusual now to see a young, strong police officer violently rough up a 65-year-old white woman. Meanwhile, we have ruthless people in the country that are raping and destroying. And when do we see a police officer manhandle a, a rapist, a gang rapist, a, you know, Muslim gangs that are raping young girls? Show me the video where we, are out, where we see police that are outraged and are roughing up these gangsters, these criminals. No, they're prostitutes with pistols. And we're going into a system where the force of the government is going to be against Christianity. And what unto us if we have participated in strengthening the hands of evil? What unto us if we have participated in tearing down a system which allowed us the freedom to preach the gospel and the freedom to assemble 
And we have participated in tearing that down and replacing it with communism and socialism and the systematic removal of righteousness. Where at gunpoint or worse, we will have to decide, do we stay faithful to Christ or do we abdicate in order to protect ourselves? This is, this is what's happening. It, it's not new. None of this is new. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what people do with power. And if, if Jerusalem did this, if the pleasant vineyard of the Almighty God got into this, what about the Gentiles? What about everybody else? They justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. That's where we're heading. And that's why we have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. That means the hope must lie within us. We must have 2020 vision and know exactly what the future holds and bring your worst. It doesn't matter. We are so committed to Christ. We are so, uh, Isaiah says, let me sing a song to you of my beloved. My beloved is how Isaiah refers to, to God. This is how we refer to Yeshua, our beloved. We just, the more we study Christ, the more we get into his character and his purpose, we're just overtaken and overwhelmed with his beauty. And now you want to come and threaten me? I'll knock yourself out. Do your worst. Here's the reason for the hope that lies within me. This is where we come from. Now, if we don't care about Christ, or we just we use the name Christ, or we're trying to make this world a better place, I just don't know if we will have the stability and the foundation to stand when push comes to shove. Because this is the future. This is the, the, the past is prologue. What do people do when they have great power? They weren't even in the promised land yet, and Moses told them, this is what you're going to do. So when we see this great power, and now this great power shifting to, to the Communist Party, this global Communist Party, what will they do? What's the saying? The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So we just have to look at the the the... the the camps, the slave camps in China, to get a glimpse of the future. What's the future look like? Oh, yeah, let's just tear down America. Let's get on the bandwagon and tear it down, even though we have no idea what's going to replace it. Which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness. This is the fruit of their labor. God was expecting fruit of his labor. He didn't get it. Well, this is going to be the fruit of their labor. Their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the Torah of Jehovah. They've cast it away. Are, are we casting away Torah, or are we getting into Torah? It's just, it just depends on, are we on the right side of God? They've cast away the Torah of Jehovah of hosts, and they've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. He puts the term right back at them. They're like, yeah, let the Holy One of Israel, let his judgment come, yeah? You've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel, and here's your future. Therefore is the anger of Jehovah kindled against this people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them and has smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn, in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away. There's more to come. 
the tribulation, the great tribulation. There's more to come. But his hand is stretched out still. And this is why the first fruits harvest is here. Because in the, in, in the midst of all this wrath, there is still mercy. And his hand is stretched out still. And he will lift up an ensign, a banner to the nations from far. Okay, what's going on here? This is, this is God's work. That they're not, they don't understand the operation of the Lord. Well, here's his operation. He's going to lift up an ensign, a banner, to the nations from far. There's nations far away. He's going to summon them. And will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. That's what's going on. That's the operation in the earth today. All of this instability and chaos and, and, and nations falling and nations rising, this is the operation of the Lord. All nations will be gathered together against Jerusalem because they were the special vineyard. They were the people set apart with high expectations to be the solution to this world's problems. And they've abandoned the Torah. And now God's going to summon, he's, he's summoning the nations. But they don't see it happening. They don't understand the operation of the Lord. He will lift up a banner to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. They're coming fast. Let's just fast forward now to Isaiah 56. We've read this when we did second Isaiah. He says, remember, he's taken down the hedge around the, the cluster, the vineyard, and, and he's summoning the nations. Well, Isaiah in 56, 9, he says, All you beasts of the field, i.e., you Gentile nations, come to devour. Yes, all you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. He's taking, the, he's taking down the hedge, excuse me. They are all ignorant. They don't understand the operation of the Lord. It's happening right under their noses, and they don't see it. They are all dumb dogs. They don't speak. They cannot bark. When they do bark... They're silenced, and they put their tail between their legs and run off scared. The wicked flee when no man pursues. When we have this truth, we bark. And, and even though our own brethren may try to silence us, I'm sorry. We must bark because we see what's happening. If you don't see what's happening, I'm sorry. This is what's happening. This is the operation of the Lord. And we have to bark. But here, God removes the hedge. So they're not barking. They're all ignorant. They don't understand the operation of the Lord. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber, and put the drink in here as well. Yes, they are greedy dogs. Again, this is, a, this is the curse in Isaiah 5. Their greed, their pride. They are all greedy dogs which can never have enough. And they are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his quarter. We've got to be the opposite of this. This, this is the failure, self-centeredness. We've got to be different. We are Christ-centered. We are focused on God's agenda. What is God doing in the earth? And as first fruits, how do we participate in his work, in his operation? Back to Isaiah 5, verse 27. None shall be weary, speaking of these Gentile beasts that are coming to destroy his people. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. 
neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. Again, just, you know, today, think of these Chinese armies. When you see them in formation, it's phenomenal. They're disciplined. And then we look at America, and the, mess, the best thing that our president, our president, when I say our, I mean the West, the leader of the West, the Western free world, what, what's on his mind? How do we create maternity combat so that women who are in second trimester can go into battle and get their brains blown out? And, and how do we bring transgenderism into the army? And how do we neutralize the army from any kind of masculinity? The hedge is being removed from the Israelite nations, more specifically from Jerusalem. Without America, Jerusalem is toast. So as America declines and collapses, the risk to Jerusalem increases exponentially. So this is, this, this is an army and a Gentile force in tight formation whose arrows are sharp and all their bows are bent. <laughs> They're ready. They're like, let's go. Just tell me the target. Target Jerusalem. Target Judah. Let's go. Whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. <clears throat> their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. This is a, a machine. This is the operation of the Lord that they were unaware of. Loving to slumber, lie down, no alarm here, no watchman. The hedge has been removed. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. This is the Gentile nations coming to destroy God's people. Yeah, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey and shall carry it away safe and none shall deliver it. This is the covenant. You will be carried away captive to faraway lands where you can serve the, the idols that you've been wanting to serve, that you've been hankering after. Now go as slaves and serve those gods. And in that day, in that day, they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. This is the tribulation. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. This, this is harsh. This is, this is Isaiah 5. And this is this, this, you know, they're sitting around or standing around listening to Isaiah. I'm going to sing a song to my beloved about my beloved. And this, this vineyard that was planted on a beautiful hill, a fruitful hill. Let's go. And then the song unfolds and the whole thing just suddenly turns on them. And, and hopefully they have digested the magnitude of this song. Just as God said to Moses, write a song and get them to sing it and teach it to the next and next, next generation. So that when all these things come upon them, they'll understand that they brought it upon themselves. Now, this is not the end of the story. And that's, we, we have to understand the whole narrative. The story doesn't end here. Let's just fast forward to Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, where here's really how the story ends and why we have good news. Isaiah 27 and verse 2. In that day, sing you unto her, Sing to Jerusalem. So let's come back to singing. A vineyard of red wine. And let's come back to a song about a vineyard. Sing you unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, Jehovah, do keep it. Oh, 
I, I thought he destroyed the vineyard. But when we fast forward in the story, he's actually keeping the vineyard. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. This is the good news. Somehow, all of this wrath gets reconciled in such a way that the vineyard is restored. And Yehovah himself is now keeping the vineyard personally night and day and watering it every moment, tender care that nobody should hurt it. This is the future. This is the future of Jerusalem and Judah. But how does it get reconciled? Well, we're coming up to Passover, just days away, a little over a week. And we're no doubt going to rehearse Isaiah 53. And again, for our New Testament Christians, they love the New Testament, but then they jump into a book like Isaiah to airlift out a little bit of poetry that serves their purposes. We don't want to do that. We don't want to use Isaiah. We want to sit at the feet of Isaiah and let him teach us. We want to respect Isaiah and hold him in highest regard, the head of the prophets. And therefore, we want to read Isaiah line by line, holistically in context. And when we do that, and we come to Isaiah 53, we see the means by which God is able to reconcile the breaking of the covenant and the wrath that these special people, I should say the special wrath, the intensified wrath that these special people have brought upon themselves, that somehow that has to be reconciled so that the covenant can in fact be fulfilled, the, 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 the uh, unconditional covenant with Abraham, that his seed will be the source of blessing in the earth. And the only way it can be reconciled is that God is sent to earth himself to be the Holy One of Israel and to fulfill the covenant. And so Isaiah 53 is a part, we can't just take it out of the narrative. So as we gather for Passover, what we have to understand is the Passover is very much an intricate part of the narrative of this love relationship between God and Israel. And we have been grafted into this narrative. And therefore, we have to respect the narrative and not hijack it. Oh, this is all about me because I'm just so important and the whole universe revolves around me because I'm just that important. Versus, okay, what have I been born into? What have I been called into? What is my eternal purpose? What is God's purpose? How do I fit into it? And Isaiah 53 is a very much a, the, the cornerstone of God's purpose with this covenant people. And he says, surely he has borne our griefs. Our griefs has nothing to do with Gentiles. Isaiah has nothing to do with Gentiles except the use of Gentiles to destroy the vineyard. This is the vineyard speaking. Surely he has borne our griefs, Israel, specifically Judah and Jerusalem, and carried our sorrows, all this curse that has come upon them. He came to carry this, to reconcile, to make reconciliation between God's people and God. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We didn't understand. 
We don't understand the operation of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. So Gentiles just take this out of context and say, you know what, I'm a sinner, and Christ came, and he was wounded because I'm a sinner. Okay, yeah, okay. But let's read it in context. There is a special relationship that God has with his vineyard. And the vineyard has been utterly corrupt and evil. And somehow that relationship needs to be restored. And this is how. Christ came and he was wounded for Israel's transgressions. He came for Israel. He was wounded for Israel's transgressions. He was bruised for Israel's iniquities. And the chastisement of Israel's peace, the at-one-ment between Israel and God, depends entirely upon Yeshua. Without Yeshua, there's no reconciliation between God and his covenanted people. And without Yeshua, God cannot fulfill his covenant, and God becomes a liar. So Yeshua and his sacrifice is critical to God fulfilling the covenant. Because the chastisement, all of this wrath that we've been reading about, that has to be upon these covenanted people, it is actually reconciled when that chastisement is upon him. And so now there can be peace between God and his people. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, we are healed. And certainly we apply this to say, you know, we are sick and we need healing, and his stripes provide this, this gift of healing. In context, the healing is spiritual. We saw in Isaiah 5 the depth of evil in these people. These people are Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are spiritually sick to the root. And it is because of Christ's operation that that sickness can be removed and the vineyard can be restored. He says, all we like sheep, that is, Israel are the sheep, have gone astray, We've turned everyone to his own way, and Yehovah has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In context, the iniquity of us all is all Israel. And this is how all Israel can ultimately be saved. Quickly, in Hebrews 6, there is another allusion to Isaiah 5. And this is where these Hebrews are on the verge of becoming unfaithful to Christ. And the apostle has to warn them and warn them that there's no one saved, always saved here. And you're on the verge of losing everything. And then he he gives them this warning, which is an allusion to Isaiah 5. He says, for the earth, which drinks in the rain that comes upon it often, this is what the earth does, it soaks up the rain, and brings forth, it says, herbs. Uh, The Greek is what we get the word botany from. So it really brings forth produce. And the allusion to five is grapes. The earth brings forth grapes. Meat for them by whom it is dressed. So if God is the husbandman, these grapes, he's the one that is expecting this harvest. And it receives blessing from God. So the earth is receiving blessing from God for doing this. But that which bears thorns and briars, direct allusion to Isaiah 5. That God says he's going to replace this with uh, thorns and briars. It's rejected, and it's nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. And that's exactly what Christ said in John 15, that if these, um, if, these, if these branches do not bear fruit, then they'll be gathered up and burned. 
And he's speaking now to spirit-filled Christians. These are Hebrews, but they've been baptized in Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit, and this is his language to them, Isaiah 5. So even though we are New Testament Christians, the expectation in Isaiah 5 is not forgotten. God has a vineyard. Isaiah loved God. God is his beloved, and, and he's so deeply disappointed that God has a vineyard, and he's expecting fruit from the vineyard. And the fruit has deeply, has given him the exact opposite of his expectation. But somehow he's working to bring the vineyard back. Part of the operation was sending Christ. Phase two of the operation is raising up the first fruits harvest. That's us. We are very much a part of the restoration of God's vineyard so that the whole earth can be blessed by this vineyard. We're just the first fruits of it. And so this notion of fruits is all about the Christian calling, goes back to Isaiah 5. So here we'll just end here in Galatians 5, where this is the expectation of the vineyard. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. This is the fruit that we can produce, brethren by the Holy Spirit and the miracle of Christ, so that our Lord and our Father can look at the first fruits vineyard and be well pleased, that, that there's an expectation of the vineyard, and we can now give them what they were expecting. So, you know, we're just a few days away now from Passover. Let's go into Passover with this sense of mindfulness of the bigger plan that we as first fruits are a part of. God is mighty, and I just love that Isaiah called him my beloved, because this is how we feel about Christ and about the Father. We love them because their, their beauty, and again, I'm thinking of um, both Deacon Jan and Pastor Murray in their recent sermons and messages about worthy is the Lamb. So as we get ready, brethren, getting our mind in the right frame of mind, deleavening our homes, getting ready to partake in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Worthy is the Lamb, but he has an expectation. Let's not disappoint him. Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMasiah, he is beloved, and he is mighty, and he is Lord. Amen.